Welcome to the Woodshop Life Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast focused on the craft of woodworking. I'm Guy Dunlap from Guy's Woodshop, or actually Guy's Shop now. I rebranded. And I'm joined by Hui Huen, a.k.a. the Alabama Woodworker. Say hello, Hui. Hello, Guy. And hello, Brian. Oh, and our new co-host, Brian Schmidt. Say hello, Brian. Gentlemen, good to be with you. Good yeah, evening. Nice to have you. So this podcast is intended to answer questions from the woodworking community and give you some of our perspectives on how we get things done in our own shops. We do have a Patreon account, and right now we just have one level. And we're simply asking for a small donation just to try to cover the cost of bringing you this podcast. So please go to patreon.com slash life. And I'd also like to say hello to our newest patrons, John Stevens and Mason Blair. Thank you so much, guys. And we sincerely hope that all of you out there will give us your support. So I'm going to address the elephant in the room and that's say hello to Brian. Um, I think he's going to be a great addition to our our team. And Brian, why don't you just tell us a a little bit about yourself real quick? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, My name is Brian Schmidt, and I am a 37-year-old father of three and husband to one. I live in Brownsburg, Indiana with my beautiful wife, Brittany, and our three kids, Bryson, Bennett, and Bailey. Um, They keep us pretty busy right now with youth sports and cheer and things like that, but still find time to, to get down to the workshop. Uh, fairly often or as often as possibly can. Figure it might be useful to share a little bit about my woodworking journey and how I how I came to love the craft of woodworking. My dad is a woodworker and my father-in-law is also a woodworker. And growing up, didn't take a whole lot of interest in it. But when we bought a house in a short sale about seven years ago, we found there were lots of repairs, renovations, trim carpentry, things like that to be done. And found that we could, you know, furnish the place what would seemingly be a lot cheaper by building our own furniture rather than buying it from the store, which every woodworker knows isn't actually true. Sure. But my dad, my dad, and my father-in-law both uh, sort of mentored me through through the home ownership and fixing up process, and acquired a miter saw, a drill, uh, pretty basic home improvement tools, and and eventually got a Dewalt miter saw or uh, table saw, excuse me. And from there, things just kind of took off in terms of my passion for building. By profession, I, I work in finance and accounting uh, for a nonprofit here in Indianapolis. And in addition to building furniture, I love building processes and structure uh, for organizations to, to grow into. So I've had some experience in that, uh, whether it's system implementations or policy and procedure development. Uh, cool. So building is, is really just something that I enjoy doing and seeing something something come together out of out of the raw materials. So now you also have a, a small business doing this, right? We do, yeah. Um, we out of out of my basement run a small small cabinet shop, uh, which might be generous to to call it that. We do. Uh, my wife and I, she helps sort of on the customer facing side uh, with residential built ins uh, and small cabinetry projects like that. It's helped her stay home with our with our kids as they've. They're all in school now uh, for the first time this year, but uh, allowed her to stay home and and help raise our daughter uh, who's born prematurely. And it's also allowed me to spend maybe more money than I care to admit in my workshop as I acquire <laughs> tools. And <laughs> so yeah. it's been we're, a good thing. We're all we're all guilty of that. Yeah. 
right. but that's cool. So your wife has uh, some involvement in the business as well. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. Make try. I think we make, I think we make a pretty good team. We're we're 13 years married and uh, probably four years into doing the the small cabinetry. We usually just do a couple projects a year, mostly referral and mm-hmm. word of mouth. We like to we don't stray far from home. And I think I think if you look around our neighborhood, you can't go more than two or three houses without finding one of our cabinetry projects in there. So it's been, it's been a big blessing. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, Cool. All right. Well, thank you so much for sharing, Brian. Yeah. I learned a couple things too. I've known, I've known Brian for what, about a year now? Yeah. About a year and a half. About a year and a half. So we're going to get right into the questions. And actually Hui has the first question. Yeah. So this question is from Doug Schreifer and this is the second of his questions, and it and he asks, next I have a future purchase question. I would like to monetize my woodworking as a side business if possible in the future. Honestly, I am not sure if that means cutting boards or commissions, but I am leaning more towards more some simple stuff and seeing where it goes. I've thought of adding some sort of CNC to the mix. I am on the fence if I should go the route of a Shaper Origin, which if you don't know, a Shaper Origin is an is a router-based handheld CNC, uh, as I can use this to make patterns for furniture projects, aid in doing some repetitive work, and do some custom accents on small items to personalize items for people? Or do I go the route of getting a Onefinity or something similar size DIY CNC machine? The Onefinity would obviously take up much more room and cannot be brought to the project, but could work on its own, so to speak. So if I am going to try and make money, it can be working on something while I am doing something else. So the part two of the of this question is, if I do go this route, do you think I should get an add-on laser attachment again for decorative personalizations or for tr- future items to, to be made? Thanks again for all that you do. So uh, again, to recap, if you're not familiar with the Shaper Origin, the Shaper Origin is a handheld CNC, so it's it's user-assisted. You have to guide the Shaper Origin to uh, do joinery or inlay or whatever it is that you're doing, shapes and whatnot, whereas the uh, Onefinity is a standalone CNC, so it has a gantry, and uh, that gantry moves the router around in your specified toolpath. Me personally, I think if you were going to go the route of say small goods, I think a Onefinity would be a better choice. And the reason is because it will be, you'll be able to fit that workpiece onto the Onefinity. And your only main concern would, would be, how do you go about securing that workpiece? I think the Shaper Origin would be a better uh, option if you were mainly a furniture maker or on uh, or did a lot of on-site work. Because the great thing about the Shaper Origin is that you can take it to your workspace um, or where it is uh, your installation uh, space. I know uh, several folks that have used the Shaper Origin for like big, uh, oddly shaped bars um, tabletops. Yeah. 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 I think that's where the shaper origin is really going to shine. Uh, whereas a small shop doing small goods, cutting boards, uh, coasters, 
um, signs, decorative signs and whatnot, I think the shape or origin is really going to uh, to shine. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, excuse me, the one finity is going to be better for small goods, whereas the shape or origin would be better for like site work, joinery, small inlays and things like that. Now, you can do the same type of small inlay work with the Onefinity. The problem comes in to when you're looking at a DIY CNC machine, you know, a, a tabletop sort of machine, is that you're, you're limited to uh, the size of the machine that you have. Um, so, again, it, it really, you kind of narrowed it down, Doug. It depends on what you want to do. Right. If you're wanting to do the small goods, I really do think a uh, a traditional DIY CNC machine is going to uh, do better for you. Whereas Shaper Origin is probably going to be better for like say site work, uh, more or less kind of the things that Brian that you that you do. Now, I don't know if you know uh, or have done uh, any CNC work, but have you thought about incorporating CNC? into your workflow in any way, Brian, have I, you? Yeah. Good, good question. So I've, I've briefly considered it. Um, I work, my basement shop is about 15 by 18. So I don't have, I have a big enough footprint for a lot of the things I, I enjoy doing, but, mm -hmm. but not big enough to where I could, I could really justify a standalone CNC machine, especially the way I, I like to move things around. Yeah. It's, it's a little more technical than some of the things that I find myself enjoying in woodworking. Mm -hmm. I, I like the, the hand tool aspect of it to, to finesse, um, kind of going from machine to hand tool to, to yeah. finesse fit. So the CNC hasn't, hasn't really appealed to me a whole lot yet. Mm -hmm. um, of course, the, the allure of the shaper and some of the things you can do with that um, just recreationally for the types of things I, I like building for my wife and friends and family, uh, that has appeal, but not something I've seriously considered. Yeah. I mean, CNC in general is just a really cool gadgety kind of thing that you can get involved in. And yeah. I, I, I think for me, you know, I went with a standalone four by four in hopes of doing more like smaller type stuff, you know, but I, I have actually thought about getting a shaper origin, but in, in retrospect, it's just, it's such a large investment. And uh, uh, honestly, with how much I've used the CNC, I've actually kind of thought that maybe just a, a small handheld CNC might've been better for me, you know, yeah. but you know, all things considered, I, I am very happy with the CNC that I have. Now, Guy, you have a two by four CNC, is that correct? A uh, four by two. Oh, excuse me. Four by two. Yes. Well, there, there's a difference. There is. Um, I understand. It, it's a four foot gantry. Mm -hmm. So it's four foot on the X and two foot on the Y, mm -hmm. um, which allows me to, if I want to, I can do a pass through on mm -hmm. a full size sheet of plywood mm -hmm. and cut with it. So. so. So what are your thoughts? Do you think if, if you were to put yourself in Doug's position, do you think smaller projects, if he was going to do the more trinkets, cutting boards type thing that a Onefinity or a standalone DIY CNC would be better than say Shaper Origin? Well, the, the Shaper Origin, I'm not, 
I haven't used one, so mm-hmm. I'm not a hundred percent sure, but I think it's 2D only. Correct. Yep. Okay. So there's a limitation there with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, while a conventional CNC is, you know, three dimensional, mm-hmm. which is actually pretty handy. You can actually put a fifth axis on it and, you know, turn and CNC at the same time. Uh, like, you know, chair legs and things like that. So there's a, as far as expandability goes down the road, the regular CNC is a, is a much better way to go. Now, if you're just going to be making, you know, you're using it to help you cut out patterns and shapes on parts and maybe do some detail work on those parts. The Shaper Origin is actually a very cool thing to have, especially if you don't have a a bunch of room for CNC. But I'm going to agree with what you said, Hui, and that, you know, from what we're we're hearing, a better way for him to go might be the something like uh, the, what's, what's that called? One infinity. Uh, one infinity. Yeah, it's one that uses the bars, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've seen pictures of that. I had a, a carbide three D shape Oco three, mm-hmm. and that thing was really good. I really liked that machine. Yeah. Before I had the, I've got the Avid now, but yeah. uh, that was a really good machine. I really liked using it. Yeah, Brian, you got something that you yeah, wanted I, to? Yeah, add to? and. And, and maybe this is to, to build on Doug's question for, for my benefit and maybe for his as well. So so with the would it matter how you want to use the machine in terms of which one would be the better fit? So one example might be um, personalizing cutting boards with uh, you know the bride and groom's name versus mm-hmm. saying, hey, I'm going to make cutting boards in, this, in, in the shape of the great state of Indiana, um, yes. where maybe you want to batch out large quantities. Mm-hmm. Would, would that... Would that distinction would that help answer the question if we knew sort of where he where he thought he might be specializing? Yeah, in that's that? that's that's a good point. So if you're like if you want to make a make let's say twenty copies of a state of Indiana cutting board, one finity, the one finity is the way yeah. to go. <laughs> yeah, 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 because you because you've got a you've got a I don't I don't want to uh, you have to operate correct the shaper. Mm-hmm. You can't just program it and let mm-hmm. it go right you have right. to operate it so everything you want to do you have to it's hands-on and i think that's why furniture makers like the shaper origin so much is yeah. because you know it's it's like one-off things it's like you know this is just a really odd thing for me to do and it would man if i could just program it into the shape there you go right yeah whereas like if you've got like 20 of the same indiana you know state Th- uh, state uh, shape that you want to make into a charcuterie board, man, you want a traditional CNC to do that. Yeah. So that that's a great question. Good point. Good point. All um, right. So I think we've answered that one quite mm-hmm. enough. Mm-hmm. Probably not. We could talk a whole show on it, but we're going to move on. So Brian, you've got the next question. Right. And this question is from Carol. And Carol asks, uh, hi, guys. Thank you for answering my previous questions. I'm a little bit behind with the podcast, but guy, I hope you're back to 100% health-wise. 
couple of questions, and I'm going to answer the first of your questions, Carol, and and probably get the second one in our next episode. And Carol's question is, I have a DeWalt DW735 planer, and so far so good. But I noticed that if I try with a wide plank, the planer makes a noise that sounds like it's too much for it to handle. How do you guys use a planer? One dimension, several passes with 32nd of an inch increments. So that was, that was Carol's question. I have the DeWalt uh, DW735 planer. That's DeWalt's 13 inch four post planer. I think right now it sells maybe $650, $700 or so. So a little bit bigger than your than your standard lunchbox planer, but but certainly no standalone cast iron uh, Powermatic. Uh, so I have the original straight knives on it. I know a lot of people have done helical head conversions. Mine, mine has the straight knives and they're probably way overdue for being changed because Carol, I get a pretty loud noise as well. Mm. I never get the feeling that it's too much for the planer though. I think it's, I think that machine naturally, especially with the straight knives is Mm. pretty loud. Um, The combination of just the planing of the board, as well as the, um, the blower motor or ejection motor that's on there Mm. um, that'll eject your, your chips as it planes. I think all of that ends up being quite loud now, one full revolution on the hand crank wheel on there will take off a sixteenth of an inch. So usually, when I'm planing boards, I'll go I'll go a half to a quarter crank, which I think it could probably do more. But just for the quality of the surface coming out the other side of the planer, I, I try not to take too much off, and because my knives are dull, so I'll go thirty second to to a sixty fourth if we're if I'm working with with a fickle wood, something like a curly maple or um, something like that, where there's a lot of grain variation, uh, grain direction variation. And as far as the process goes, if I'm milling boards, multiple boards all down to the same thickness, I'll run them together. Now, maybe, maybe it'll be, you know, two, four inch wide boards going through at once. I'll get one started. I'll let it feed in six inches or so and grab Mm -hmm. And then I'll feed the next. That helps too with the snipe a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll I'll make sure everything goes through at the same level um, and pull it off. And then I'll I'll take the next crank on the handle to to reduce it by maybe a thirty second of an inch or a half crank on that. Mm-hmm. And then I'll I'll run them back through either that same direction or I'll flip direction depending on depending on where it needs it the most with the plan that I take an even amount of material off each side of the board as I'm working down to my final thickness. I don't rely on the thickness gauge or measurement bar on on that. It's it's a good yeah. guide, but I'll either use uh, an Incra, Incra rule that I have or every once in a while, but truthfully, very rarely, might get the calipers out just to measure the thickness. And I'll yeah. measure measure that thickness in the center of the board, not out on one of the ends where it's more prone to snipe and, and being a little bit thinner. We, how about you? Any advice on how you go about uh, using your planer? So uh, I do know the DeWalt DW735, although I did not have that. I had a uh, Delta uh, s- equivalent similar to it. it I, I guess you wouldn't call it a four post, but it's where the head goes up and down yep. on, you know, so it's, it, so I had one of those and, and they are very loud. So h- how do you, you know, 
it's just going to be loud. There, yeah. those lunchbox planers are very, very loud, and it might seem like it's more than uh, can be handled. And if that is the case, I, I, I say just back off on on how many passes you're taking. But you know, you're not going to go wrong with several passes at thirty, uh, you know, thirty seconds uh, inch increment. I don't know what the max cut depth is for the DW730. Do you guys, either of you guys know? What's the max? I had a 735 for a number of years. And you're so, not taking more than a 32nd of an inch off. Yeah. So so if you are getting what you believe to be excessive noise, it might be that you're just taking off more than you can chew on that planer. I know that when I had the, D, uh, the uh, Delta planer that I... I always used a significant amount, or I always used an in-feed and out-feed support of some sort, uh, just so that I wasn't putting too much stress on those rollers. But I don't think the added stress on the rollers is what's causing the noise. I do believe maybe you're just taking off more than you can chew. Uh, Guy, any tips that you might be able to offer Carol? No, nothing that's really not been said already. I mean, it's it's a very noisy piece of equipment. All the lunch, it's... For all intents and purposes, it is a lunchbox planer. Yeah. It uses the same type of universal motor. Yeah. It's got, you know, blades that slap up against the wood. It's mm-hmm. noisy. Yeah. Um, it's not any noisier than any other lunchbox planer, though. The thing is, you're not going to take more than a 32nd of an inch off with that thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's just that's the way it is. And Brian was talking about a half crank. That's why I always did it. I kind of like did the first pass mm-hmm. and I always tried to start the, the handle in the down position or the fully up position. That way I would always remember where I am. Oh, okay. Nice. So I could just take it and go like push it down, bring it up. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Every, yep. Mm-hmm. That way I don't have to look at anything. And I was consistently taking off a 32nd of an inch. I did have helical heads on mine. Did it reduce the noise any? I don't know because I never, I never used straight knives on it. I bought it and before I even turned the thing on, mm. uh, a bird Shelix had one in it. Mm, nice. But I know I had a Dewalt. I don't know the number of it. It was a regular lunchbox planter. I had that thing for like fifteen years mm-hmm. with a universal motor on, and it was every bit as loud as the other one. So yeah. Yeah. It doesn't really matter. It's loud. Yeah. There's just there's no way around it. Don't try to take off too much. And the thing with that planer is with the steel, with the high speed steel knives, I, I, I keep an extra set of blade on blades on hand when it starts tearing stuff out mm-hmm. and the, the boards start having a hard, even with the, the, the bed has wax on it, the boards are having a hard time getting through it. Mm-hmm. Your, your knives are dull and you need to change them. Yeah. So that's all I can really add. Yeah. So, so Carol, maybe, maybe a couple things to look at as you're, as you're doing that is pay attention to the, the quality of the surface. Is it, as it exit, the exits the planer? If, yeah. um, if you're getting a clean, a clean cut, if it's coming out fairly smooth. It, it could just be the, the regular noise. Um, of course, always make sure you wear ear protection when using the machine. I'm in a small basement shop. So it's, it's that much louder. So that's one that I don't even turn on without uh, some sort of noise canceling headphones on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's all. That's all I've got for that. All right. Awesome guy. I think you've, uh, you've got the next one, right? 
I do. And this question comes from Mason. Mason Blair, our, one of our newest patrons. Nice. Thank you so much, Mason. <laughs> Hi, guys. This is Mason from Blair's Woodshop again. A follow-up from the first question I asked about the Jet 1632 conveyor belt. I remember that question. Sean, I think, was a big help on that. I did what you said, and now there is no more constant adjustments, and it seems to work great. Thank you for your help. That's, that's awesome. All right, so now for his question. I have some really nice-looking spalted maple, and as you know, it's not structurally the most sound. I was thinking about maybe making it to thin veneer for box lids and things like that. I have no veneering experience or vacuum pump. What is a cheap way to start veneering without breaking the bank? I've been spending so much on tools. The last thing I need to do is go to, go to my wife saying I need more tools. <laughs> well, yes, you need to do that whenever possible. Then she'll just get numb to it after a while. <laughs> Thank you for all you guys do. Look, for, look forward to hearing what you guys suggest. P.S. I do have everything to make veneers, just looking for different ways to attach it to my work pieces. Mason. So I veneered for years, oh, probably about 20 years before I ever had a vacuum bag. And I, I didn't have a, a, a veneer press or anything like that. And I actually did a video on my YouTube channel. And I think the, the name of it is How to Veneer Without a Vacuum Bag, <laughs> where I go through my process, where I take um, melamine and I use those as calls. And then I would um, take two by fours and, you know, make the, uh, the wedged calls where it's thicker in the middle than it is on the ends. Yeah. Yeah. On the joiner. So you start the, the board halfway down the joiner and yeah. and then what you can do is you can just clamp the ends of the boards mm -hmm. onto the calls and it gives you even pressure all the way across. Right, right. And it works really well. For years I cut my own veneer, you know, a sixteenth to a thirty second of an inch, somewhere in that general area. And I Use that. I mean, I said for literally for twenty years, that's what I did, mm -hmm. and it works really well. The, the 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 only thing you have to remember, you know, you said you're using spalted maple. The spalting in that maple is actually like a fungus or a mold. It's very punky. It's very soft. And from I have veneered spalted maple before. Glue will come up through that punky parts of the the board. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So just be prepared for that. Do not use regular PVA glue. Do not use tight bond. If you want to use tight bond, use their, their cold press veneer glue. Um, just be aware of that. I don't know. Hui, what, what kind of suggestions do you have for veneering if you don't have a vacuum bag? Man, if you don't have a vacuum bag, there are a couple of companies out now that do have these handheld pump vacuum Oh, like use the wine pump? Yes. Yeah, yes. Uh -huh. I've not tried it. But if you're doing small projects and if you're not needing a huge vacuum bag, I don't know. Yeah, I might people, give it a try. Those those are mostly made for people doing like skateboards and stuff. Yes. Yes. It, you're you're absolutely right. They are advertised for people doing skateboards. But if you're doing small panels, mm -hmm. boxes and whatnot, That's my true. guess is that you might want to do more bigger projects than that. And really... 
the only other option that I know of is using clamping calls, like you said, Guy, and some form of melamine or whatnot. And it's a very effective way of doing it. Now, mind you, you do have to invest in a lot of clamps. But as the saying goes, you can never have too many clamps. You don't need so, expensive clamps. You can just use regular F clamps. Yep. Because they're using the calls on there. Just go to Harbor Freight and buy some of those $5 F clamps. Man. I was just going to call say the, the Harbor I, Freight I clamps. I beat man. you to it. Ha. Yep. But those are great. You know what? I used those clamps for years until like, I don't know, five, six years down the road, they finally broke. And I think I had a whole bunch of them that uh, I had replaced with the Pony Jorgensen's and, and I ended up donating them. But they, they were, majority of them were still very workable. I think that's a great option to do is, you know, get some, a bunch of, uh, uh, what is it, uh, Harbor Freight clamps. I don't know if they still run the 20% <laughs> coupon, but <laughs> yeah. I'd always use that coupon to get, you know, I always come out of Harbor Freight with a clamp. But that's a great option and it works. It's a little bit time consuming, so you might need a glue with a little bit more open time to get all the clamps on. But uh, like you said, you already mentioned uh, the kind of glue to use, guys. So uh, really there's, you know, there, the only other option I can think of is just like a small skateboard type vacuum press with a hand pump. Brian, you got anything else? Yeah, so I, I haven't done a lot of veneering, but I've, everyone, I've bought one or two one or two samples from veneer supplies and every once in a while when I'm in Rockler hashtag not sponsored, I will um, pick up one of their little, uh, you know, curly maple veneer kits. Cause I like making boxes as teacher gifts for our kids, teachers and things like that. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. all I do is I keep some uh, pre-finished plywood, some of, some of the UV one side or two side plywood, that I have left over from cabinetry projects and, and I've got it cut down to about the, you know, the size of a box lid and I'll just, I'll just get that veneer and, um, you know, pick a substrate. Usually it's half inch plywood or, um, sometimes even quarter inch depending on the use. And I'll just, I'll glue it on there and then I'll use the, the pre-finished sides of the plywood and just create a sandwich there. Mm. Um, with the pre-finished side facing in so that glue won't bond to the, to the UV finished surface. Mm, mm. And I'll do basically exactly what you were describing uh, each of you with the clamps and the clamps I like using are Menards master force F style clamps. They've got the heavy duty ones that have a four and a half or five inch throat on them. Mm. Um, so you can reach pretty far. I mean, I don't do big panels, but I can even just with one of those to to hit the center of the um, of the sandwich that I've made there. Then I can use smaller clamps around the outside, and I get sufficient even clamping pressure um, across the piece. But again, I'm, most of what I'm doing is you know a, a twelve inch by twelve inch or small box, yeah, yeah small box yeah. type size. So, um, but I've had pretty good success with that and. Yeah. Um, interestingly enough, I typically just use type bond too, and it seems to have worked and finished out nicely. So I've either gotten lucky or, um, they're going to start delaminating or something in the next. I think you'll be fine. Another thing, my kids are off to middle school by then and the elementary yeah. school teachers are wondering where I'm at for a while. Uh, another, another thing we didn't <laughs> mention Mason is there's a, a technique called hammer veneering. 
Oh, yes. Uh, yeah. For small boxes and things like that, it might be a good way for you to go. All it is is you, you, you get the special veneer hammer. It's kind of like, almost looks like an axe with the blade turned sideways on it. Mm-hmm. And it's not really a hammer. It's more like a big iron squeegee. Squeegee, yeah. And what you do is you, you flood the surface with hide glue. Mm-hmm. Okay. You put the veneer on top of it, and you cover it with more high glue. And then you use the the big uh, squeegee veneer hammer yeah. as almost like a squeegee, and you just move it across and let the weight of the hammer, you don't like press down real hard, but you let the weight of the hammer remove the excess high glue. Yeah. And then you clean it off that way. And it you really don't need any clamps. So that's an option too. There are a couple good videos out there on YouTube of people doing it. And normally, I, I unless it's one of my own videos or one of Hui's videos or one of Sean's videos, I normally don't recommend watching other people's videos, but um, there are a couple good ones out there. I can't remember who did them, but all I can tell you is if somebody went out on a limb and put a hammer veneering video on YouTube, they know what they're doing. (laughs) That's not something a a neophyte is going to do a a video on. Yeah. So, um, yeah. All right. So I think we're back to we for the first next question. Yes. This is from Matt and Matt is a Patreon a patron to our Patreon campaign. Hey guys, do you know where I can find information on guidelines for building furniture, i.e. websites or books? For example, I'm looking to build a queen size platform bed with 20 inch legs and use castle joint joinery to connect the four sides to the legs. I'm trying to figure out what the minimum size for the four sides feet should be and how deep should the castle joints be? Deeper than my 10-inch table saw can cut. Thanks for all the great help, Matt. So if you're not familiar with the castle joint, uh, think of like uh, the uh, the short side. Let's, let's say it's a twin bed, just hypothetically. The short side of the twin bed and the long side of the twin bed, and you're doing a half lap along the vertical side, and those two ends sort of uh, meet, and then... Uh, you've got uh, that sort of X that's created with the short side and the long side that goes into um, a, a hollowed out X on the leg post for that bed. That's probably a terrible description, but. If yeah, you- I, have no, I have no idea what you're even talking about, but the way you described it now, I now I know what it is. Oh, okay. Well, if you are confused, look up Castle Joint and and you should be able to find out uh, what I'm talking about. But as far as I know, the Castle Joint that the Castle Joints that I've seen have been the full length of whatever those two mating sides are. I don't think that that is necessary, right? So let, let let's say your your bed has I don't know, sides on it that is eight inches deep. My goodness, you know, four, to, four inch deep castle joint, that 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 seems a little excessive. 
I've seen several folks using the castle. And, and I think a lot of the lore of using the castle joint is just the bragging rights of saying I used a castle joint. I don't actually think that that will be an appropriate joint to use for the bed unless really what your your lore is just is just to use the joint. If really that's all you want to do is just to use the joint. And, it, and if that is the case, I would say go to the bandsaw. But by no means do you need joinery that is that robust or that thick. I honestly think that you'd be better off, uh, you know, just just doing traditional mortise and tendon on it. But in terms of guidelines for building furniture, uh, as far as I can tell, uh, and and through my own personal experience, is that um, when it comes to joinery, mortise and tenon, it's a third, third, and a third, um, or a quarter, a quarter and a half in terms of the half being the size of that tenon. So if you want to go through uh, with with that general guideline maybe do that if you're deciding if you ultimately decide not to go to the castle joint route but again the whole lore of the castle joint is that sort of uh, you know you're using uh, a half lap joint and if it's a half lap joint then i would imagine that it's going to be half the width of your material right so uh, th that's just my personal opinion on it um if you're going to if you're going to do right by doing a castle joint, I think you're going to go about half the width of whatever those the sides of uh, the bed is going to be. Does that make any sense at all, Guy, or am I completely... Well, yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to have to agree with you because up until tonight, I've never heard of a castle joint. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I'm not going to think it's necessary because I've never had to do it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't um, know. It's bragging rights. It's bragging rights. Yeah, that, that sounds pretty, uh, I can't even where we're looking for. Anyways, uh, I, I said, I, I don't know if that's necessary. Yeah. But I think dovetails aren't necessary. And people do them. Good point. Good so point. Um, <clears throat> as far as, you know, uh, queen size platform beds, there's there's all kinds of different drawing. You can just use bed bolts on the thing and those work fine too. Yeah. It really depends on how sturdy you need the bed. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean this in a bad way, but how heavy are the people that are going to be on the bed? Sure. You know, yeah. if it's me and my wife between the two of us, we've got, you know, 250 pounds, mm -hmm. um, less than 300, I should say between the two of us. Um, but then again, I, you know, I, I know a couple guys that are, you know, they're, they're large and in charge <laughs> and, you know, they've, they've, they're putting some weight on the bed. So those are things that, that, and I, and I, I, I don't know any nice way to say that, but you have to look at the load yeah. that the, the bed is going to carry. Mm -hmm. If it's a platform bed, are you still going to put a box spring on it with the mattress? Mm -hmm. Mm. Some people don't do that anymore. They just go with a straight platform, put down a piece of ply or whatever, and put the put the mattress right on top of it. Now we put a a, a box spring down first, so that's extra weight. Yeah. All things that have to be considered. Yep. All that being said, is all the weight on a bed pretty much goes down. So if you're you've got the bed platform mm -hmm. into the legs, you've got to transfer the weight from the platform into where those legs are meeting the 
or I should say the aprons are meeting the legs. Right, right, yep. And typically, uh, a nice, hefty mortise and tenon joint is going to be more than enough mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to handle that. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. Um, as far as websites or books that, you know, explain a lot about basic furniture design, I really, I'm not a good help on that. Uh, the, the, the thing I, I I'm a, a monthly subscriber to Fine Woodworking Magazine and their, their website. And I, anytime I have a question, I always manage to find an article on their, their website from a, a trusted source that helps me do certain things. So what do you think, Brian? You ever built a yeah. bed before? I've, I have not built a bed, although I, I guess I built a, a Barbie-sized uh, <laughs> set of bunk beds for our daughter's dollhouse last Christmas, um, but probably not too did terribly you use helpful castle joints? this question. I did not use castle joints, no. Um, so the the little bit of research I've, I've done on this, it, would it be fair to say that the advantage to the castle joint is that it allows you to break the bed down and move it as opposed to, you know, creating a big rectangular glued together structure. Is that, is that true that you'd be able just to about, just about any bed joint? you have, any, any bed you have to break down because you'll never get through the doorway. You'll never get through the doorway. Yeah. yeah. You, if you were to do mortise and tenon style, is there a way to do that where it could be disassembled still? Yeah. You use mortise and tenon along with bed bolts. Yes. Coupled, coupled with the bed bolts. Got coupled it. With the okay. Bed bolts, yeah. 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 Yep. I'm with you now. Um, so all of the beds that that I've I've seen in my uh, limited Google search that that I've done here see, that show a castle joint in mm-hmm. in the construction seem to be smaller platform style beds. Yes. So on this one, 20 inch legs. It that wow. Maybe that's not tall, but it seems like it might be kind of tall. Yeah. And, and when trying to think about the proportion of the height of the leg to your apron going around. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm wondering if a, if a shorter leg and a, and a narrower um, apron or rail, I guess that would, would go around the bed um, might be, might be more functional uh, for that style of bed. Um, if you were, you know, it, the, the way that castle joint is going to come together, we I like the way you described it. You're going to have to do a half lap in those mm-hmm. in that intersection of those rails. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you've got, you know, three and a quarter inch or so um, cut capacity on your table saw, I mean, you're looking, if you want to do it entirely off the machine, you're looking and, and you're going to use your table saw, which is what, what Matt referenced in his question. He asked, could it be, does it need to be deeper than my 10 inch table saw can cut? You're really looking at a six to six and a half inch uh, rail at that point. That's um, a large rail. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. But, really but, but could be done, could be done off the machine. Short of that, you could, you could get it started and then, and then continue it with hand tools. If, if you wanted a, you know, a wider rail than that in order for that half lap joint to come together, but bandsaw and then finish it with hand tools. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that'd probably be, probably be the best way if, uh, if you wanted something wider than that, but I'd, I like and guy I like your recommendation of fine woodworking. I think mm-hmm. there's probably more than one article out there on 
designing beds and um, the use designing of everything. Use of the castle joint. So, mm. yeah. um, I will say this much in terms of the limitations of your band uh, of your table saw, right? So, thinking of the limitations of your table saw, you know, we're looking at the limitations would maybe say I don't know a six inch wide rail. Yeah, that's I think going to be plenty, plenty wide for a castle joint with adjoining leg post. I think it's going to be fine. Um, Yeah. 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 I think a great rule of thumb is go and look at, see what uh, other platform beds are. What are the thicknesses of those? And, and they're using, you know, bed bolts or those, uh, what do you call them? (sighs) They're slotted, uh, they slide in and hook in. Yeah. The hanger. Yeah, Yeah. 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 And those are going to be a lot less robust than, say, a castle joint. So, you know, look and see what those platform beds are. I might, might, I guarantee you they're probably not as thick as six inches wide. Yeah. yeah. You know? All right. So, anyway, try that. All right. And uh, I think you've got the next question, Brian. Yep. This question is from Dylan. Dylan asks Any advice for someone trying to start their own woodworking business? I do small crafts currently, but I plan to start selling furniture in the near future. Um, and that was that was Dylan's question. So not enough specifics there, I think, to to really drill in on what what he's asking. But I'm, I'm going to talk through some of the thought process I might go through if I were you, Dylan. It would be helpful to know if you're looking at doing it full time or part time. I found that. Uh, trying to that I would think that if you were trying to start your own woodworking business and that be your only source of income, that's a really hard thing to get started and be sustainable. Mm-hmm. And that a really good way to get into monetizing the you know woodworking hobby and monetizing it into a business is to is to have a full time job that pays your bills and nights, weekends, free time to work on building, building your skill level, doing small crafts like you're describing, but then also starting to, uh, to sell furniture if that's what you're interested in. Now, the question that I think is important to, to answer is where do you see an underserved need in your, Mm. your area or in the market? Mm. And is there an underserved need that you can capitalize on by, by building or providing something to, to meet that. So in our area, we have a lot of fairly recently built homes that are middle-class homes and where people have a desire to take, you know, what may be an empty box of a room and Mm -hmm. make it feel a little higher end by putting some sort of built-in cabinetry in. So that's where, that's where me personally, I've, I've seen an underserved need and Mm -hmm. not just, there's a lot of contractors out there, but to have somebody who's well-established in a community to come in and provide provide a professional experience and somebody that you know you can rely on and communicate well with and that's where you know it's it's not the most glamorous of things building cabinetry but it's there's very much an underserved need in our local community there um, which is where we found uh, a little bit of success on a as a side business so there i get to reinvest some of the proceeds in building my shop which and i also get good practice doing uh, the projects that we do and that just builds my capabilities to do um, bigger or more elaborate builds in the future if, if that's what we decide we want to do. But it's it's a lot easier to do that with with a full-time job happening at the same time and yeah. not having to put the pressure on uh, 
uh, starting a woodworking business and using that to keep the lights on at home. Yeah. The other thing, I, I started out actually in college as a professional golf management major down at Clemson University. Go Tigers. Wow. I did that because I loved golf and I really liked being around the golf course. Well, up until that point, all of my experience at the golf course had been, you know, on the first tee or <laughs> out on the driving range hitting golf balls. And I started doing some internships at country clubs and serving the membership there, which was great. But I had to watch them play golf and I had to sit mm-hmm. in the pro shop or I had to run the tournament and I didn't get to do the thing I really loved about it. And that was mm-hmm. golf. So I say that as maybe even a cautionary tale. Mm. Uh, it seems really romantic to spend your day, you know, applying your hands at, at making sawdust and furniture and doing it for a living. But a lot of times when you when you do that, some of the some of the romantic aspects of that kind of wear off and it, it really does become a job and can take the fun out of it. So yeah. um, not for everybody. There are people that that love doing it and mm-hmm. and I love doing it on a part time basis. But uh, <laughs> I just say that as as something to consider as you think about uh, what you're planning for there in the future. Yeah. That's all. That's all really good advice, Brian. It is. I've I've done both, you know, as hobby and as a professional, and and I've been doing it for a very long time, and there is absolutely no romance left at all in the craft for me. There hasn't been for, you know, probably fifteen years. Everything is just totally utilitarian for me. I, I've I I have gotten you know, new skills. I always try to improve on what I've done, but, you know, now that I, I do it full time again, it's, it's a job just like anything else, man. It's just a job, but I do enjoy it. So it's not as bad as, you know, uh, working for somebody else and, and not woodworking. So, um, but you're absolutely right about trying to uh, fill a, a need or a gap that belong that that's somewhere that's in your marketplace. Probably the most common mistake I see people make it has to do with pricing. Mm. People think in order to get business you have to be the cheapest guy in town, and I strongly disagree with that. I would rather be myself. I'd rather be in the mid or in the high end. Mm. Um, I would rather sell one piece at $10,000 than 10 pieces at $1,000. Yeah. Any day of the week. Mm -hmm. So take that into consideration. What, what do you, what can you add? We, yeah. So this past year, actually it's more been more likely like two years. I've been doing quite a few commission pieces And I will say, and this reiterates something that Brian already said, is that sometimes you end up doing stuff that you don't particularly care for. There is a gentleman that I know that owns his own business, and all he does is make custom cabinet, uh, custom closets, excuse me. Brian, great information about finding that need because this guy found a need. He saw all these builder grade homes. And said, hey, nobody makes custom closets. And so that's what he does. By the way, 
he hates doing it. (laughs) (laughs) He does not enjoy it. He says, oh, man, I really wish I could do what you do, which is make commitment. I'm like, I don't know if you would necessarily like because there are times I make stuff that I really do not have any desire to make at all. But I do it because, well, it's an opportunity, right? It's a paycheck, right? What you said, Brian, about having a full-time gig so that you can do and focus on the things that you really do enjoy and then trying to make that into your business, right? And so that gives you the opportunity to say no when it really is not something that suits your fancy or say yes when it's a really wonderful opportunity and a challenge for you. That's a great way of getting into the business and then making that your market versus finding what the market is, right? Which is the opposite of that is finding that need and doing that, but you might not get a lot of enjoyment out of it. In fact, actually, you probably won't get a lot of enjoyment out of it. Whereas doing something and being very good at something that you very much enjoy, the problem is that with that is that you might not be able to supplement or get to that full-time position. Whereas Whereas if you have that full-time job, it gives you that, that, that opportunity to say no. Yeah. Does that make sense? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So, so, you know, it, I, I guess maybe Dylan, the question <laughs> is a, a little bit more of the, you know, Zen of uh, motorcycle repair than it might be like a direct yeah. thing. You just kind of have to figure out what, you, what it is that you want to do. Yeah. yeah. And, I, yeah. and I think the advantage to, to sort of easing your way into that is it, it gives you the the time and we use, use the word opportunity. It gives you the time and the opportunity to, to figure out what it is you do really like doing. You know, for me, I love seeing spaces transformed, right? I mm-hmm. love seeing that living room with the fireplace and the two empty alcoves on each side and getting in there and talking with the client about, Hey, what do you, what do you want the space to do for you? And what do you want it to look like? And like, what do you want the vibe in this room to be? And, mm. and seeing that, that space transform, you know, that, mm-hmm. that energizes me. And that's, that's what helps me persevere through the sanding and installation phase of the project. <laughs> Cause yeah, it's right. Process. Nothing. Yeah. Nothing's perfect, but, but, it, but it'd give you a chance, you know, three and a half years ago, we were selling farmhouse style dog, <laughs> dog feeder bowls, which is great because I learned how to cut out circles and, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a progression over time and giving yourself the, like I said, sort of that soft entry of already having that full-time income and then doing this and, and building your skill set and building your equipment and your shop, um, will, I think, set you up for, for longer term success and happiness. Um, yeah. Cause I don't think, I don't think anybody gets into, into woodworking for the money. I think it, I think in almost every case, it's because they've, they've got some passion for it. Um, and when done well, it, it does, it, it can provide. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, I think I've got the last question. And right. this is, question is unsigned. I have no idea who it came from, but we're going to read it. So it says, hello, fellow woodshop enthusiasts. Oh, hello, whoever you are. I was recently watching Guy's YouTube videos of the secretary with tambour doors. He made a comment about sanding the door to, I think, 350, uh, but also made a comment about treating the end grain differently so that it would not take on more oil 
and I assume darken it more than the face. Mm. He did not really elaborate on the technique. How is end grain treated differently when applying oil finishes and when staining? Mm. That is a very good question, whoever mm. you are out there. <laughs> um, the more you sand something, the more you close the pores. Mm -hmm. Okay. So if you've got flats on wood, the pores are, aren't really that open on the flats on part of the board, let's say on right. top of the board, but on the end of the board, you, you know, you, you think we, we always talk about the pack of straws. That's the end of the pack of straws. So if you put finish in there, especially something like oil, oil, whenever you put oil on a piece of wood, it tends to darken the wood yeah, yeah. or, or give it a, an amber hue. A really good way to think about it is like, let's say a lot of people really hate finishing cherry and they hate finishing hard maple. Why? Mm -hmm. Because there's inconsistencies in the absorption of the finish. Yeah, because of the way, just the way the wood is. So mm -hmm. you get these blotches in it. Think yeah. about the same thing on, on end grain, but now you're getting the whole end is just blotched. It's going to mm -hmm. be darker than yeah. the top is. Mm -hmm. So what I always do too, and especially on something like that, where it had an edge treatment and had a, 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 like a thumbnail on it. Yeah. You cannot sand across the grain. So on the end grain of that thing, when I was showing that thing and, and on that particular piece, I had to take sandpaper and I probably went up to 320, maybe not 350, probably up to 320, 220 on top and 320 on the sides because I put a shellac finish on it. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I literally just, you know, a half inch movement and... With the grain, I did the end grain yeah. around the piece. And it took a hell of a long time. But I was really glad I did it. And the finish came out very, very nice. So there you have it. Actually, I did put down a, a, a first layer was... Um, Washco? No, it was... Sure. A, a, oh, why can't I speak tonight? Boiled linseed oil and uh, naphtha. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to make sure that the end grain didn't get too dark. But in uh, yeah. most cases, you really don't have to worry about it that much. Uh, if you're using a water-based finish, for example, I use a lot of uh, water-based finishes now. Um, whether it's shellac first and then like a water-based polyurethane over the top of it or the, the, the waterborne um, conversion varnish I'm always talking about. Mm. What what do you think, Hui? Yeah, I almost always finish the end grain of a project at a higher grit. Usually it's one or two uh, steps in grit higher than, say, the flat portion of a work surface, of, uh, of the workpiece. And for the exact same reason, uh, end grain is going to absorb that finish, particularly if I'm applying an oil finish faster than say uh the uh, flat grain or the flat sawn portion of it 
And again, that is because of the nature in which the tree grows. It, it absorbs faster along the end grain than does the flat grain. So complete agreeance of, of your process guy. And uh, I do the same. I always finish the end grains, uh, end grain at a higher grit. So what, Brian? What, do you, what do you think, Brian? Yeah. I hate to sound like what is What does a new guy think? <laughs> I hate to sound like a broken record, but I think you guys pretty well covered that. Yeah. It, it's just having the, I always tell myself when I get to that, that phase of the project that quality work matters and yeah. to, not, to not skip steps and mm-hmm. to finish strong and yeah. to not, not shortcut the sanding and finishing process. Yeah. That's, that's a, that's a really good piece of advice. Most woodworkers hate to do two things. They hate to do, they hate to sand mm-hmm. and they're scared of finishes. Yeah. I'm the exact opposite. I, I, I don't call sanding sanding. I call it finish prep because just because it sounds nicer, but I love to do finish prep because that's the last chance you get before the finish goes on. And I like putting finish on. So, um, I don't know if that scares the hell out of some, some woodworkers. They just, Oh no, sanding understand. doesn't scare me, but our, our no, really the putting, putting, putting finish on. It's oh, like, okay. what, what, what is, what's, what's the single most, most common way for a woodworker to screw up his project, put finish on it. Put it finish on it. Yeah. Yeah. Oil finishes while easy to put on are kind of finicky unless mm-hmm. you're using armor seal. If you want, and this is not an ad for armor seal, but if you want, and we've talked about this many times, if you want to finish, that's completely guide proofed. In other words, you cannot screw it up no matter how hard you try. It's armor seal. Yeah. I can't say good enough good things about it. Um, I just don't like the dry time. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I can't, I can't have something sitting around in my shop for a couple days drying. Yeah. Um, but other than that, it's a great finish. So I think that's going to do it for the show. And I would like to thank everyone who left us a five star review on iTunes. It really does help in the search rankings. And of course, we truly appreciate the support and feedback. Please remember this podcast is here to answer questions from the woodworking community. So if you have woodworking questions you would like answered, you can send them through the podcast contact page at woodshoplifepodcast.com or DM us through Instagram at woodshopslife, woodshopslife, woodshoplife. I can be found on YouTube at Guy Shop and on Instagram at Guy's Woodshop. And where can you be found, Hui? You can find me at alabamawoodworker.com. You can find all my links there. And Brian, where can you be found? I can be found in my basement workshop. I do not have much of a social media profile, but uh, we'll see if we can. Better man than most. (laughs) Yeah, well, we'll see if we can't get a few pictures posted and a page put together here in the not too distant future. Super. All right. Very good. And uh, we'll see you guys in a couple weeks. All right. See you in a couple. Have a good one. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. Yeah.